Good afternoon and welcome. Welcome to the 114th season of the Canadian Club of Toronto and the 34th anniversary of our annual Outlook Luncheon with the National Post. My name is Nick Chambers and I am the President of the Canadian Club of Toronto. On behalf of the club, our event sponsor, the National Post, and our, sorry, our event partner, the National Post, and our event sponsor, Scotiabank, I am delighted to be joined by an esteemed panel of experts whom I will introduce in just a moment. Last week, it was hard not to notice the contrast between the year-end pronouncement of our Prime Minister and those of several other major heads of state. That said, Mr. Harper's words have not been the only ones to highlight the differences between our prospects and those of our neighbours to the south, west and east. Can we all breathe a sigh of relief and splurge on new Chanel wallets for our Canadian passports? Is the worst really behind us? How much attention do we need to pay to what's happening in Ireland, Greece or Britain? What's a Canadian to do during these unprecedented economic times? It is truly an honour for me to welcome you to one of the Canadian Club's most popular and much anticipated traditions, the annual Financial Outlook Luncheon. In partnership with the National Post and sponsored by Scotiabank, we couldn't think of a better way to begin the new year than to reflect on what lies ahead in the economy, the markets and in politics. Consider this luncheon a prognostic jumpstart to your year. Economically, as our guest Mr. Fisher pointed out, it was anything but business as usual in 2010. And politically, Canadian and American electorates shook things up in a big way, ensuring political headlines would continue to compete with economic ones over the next few years. With federal and provincial elections, debates on the fate of the Eurozone, and U.S. primaries on the horizon, our panelists can say goodbye to the prospect of a good night's sleep for at least a little while. With this backdrop in mind, let's turn our attention now to our panelists and their forecasts for the year ahead. To our live audience, please hold your applause until I've finished introducing our panelists. To those of you on the panel, please stand as I call your name and remain standing until everyone has been introduced. On my far left, Diane Francis, editor-at-large of the National po uh, Financial Post. John Iveson, national columnist with the National Post. Terence Corcoran, editor of the Financial Post and Financial Post magazine. Warren Jeston, senior vice president and chief economist with Scotiabank. Amanda Lang, senior business correspondent with CBC News. Gemini Award-winning host of CBC's The Lang and O'Leary Exchange and Vice President of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and Gordon Fisher, President of the National Post and Executive Vice President of Eastern Canada for the Post Media Network. Thank you all. Please be seated. I'd like to thank today's head table sponsor, Scotiabank, represented here by our panelist Warren Jeston. I would also like to thank our reception sponsor, the Institute of Chartered Accountants of Ontario. Thank you both for joining us today and for making this event possible. Let me remind everyone in our live audience that you can use the cards on your table to submit a, a question to our panel. Time permitting, we will pose your questions toward the end of the discussion. 
I will now pass the mantle to our moderator, Amanda Lang. Amanda will preside over what is sure to be a lively, thoughtful, and engaging discussion with some of this country's most respected business and political observers. Amanda. Thanks, Nick. And it's a delight for me to be here with you uh, for the outlook. Uh, I thought we should begin by reviewing all of the predictions made by the panel last year. Or not. Uh, predictions are difficult. I asked uh, John Iveson about uh, half an hour again what he thought would happen in the cabinet shuffle, which happens at 2 o'clock today. And he said, are you crazy? I'm not going to tell you that. It's happening at 2 o'clock. But apparently he is willing to make a day-long prediction, often. Uh, Shaw once said you could lay all economists end-to-end -end and they still wouldn't reach a conclusion. I like to add they're probably happy to get laid at all. Each of our, it is a bit of a test of a room, I'll, I will give you that. Uh, each of our panelists will speak for a few minutes. Uh, they're given eight minutes each. They don't have a clock up here. Uh, most of them work for Gordon Fisher, so I'm hoping that he will have the task of making them sit down if they go too long. Uh, but after that eight minutes that sets the scene for each of them, uh, we'll then engage in a Q&A. Uh, and as Nick mentioned, you do have cards on the table. It's better if you're engaged in this discussion early. I'll bring you in as soon as I get questions uh, that are interesting. Uh, so uh, so do, do I'm, I'm joking, do write them down and send them up and we'll uh, make it as conversational as possible. Let's get underway, uh, beginning with uh, Warren Justin. Please uh, join me at the podium, Warren. Thank you very much. Uh, as in previous years, I'm going to give you a rundown as to how we see the global economy uh, uh, evolving over the next year, the North American economy, Canada, financial markets, commodity markets in eight minutes. Uh, before doing that, I, since I've got so much time, I'm going to give you a brief uh, recap of what happened in 2010 because it's pretty instructive what we've gone through over the last year. We started the year in a bit of a head fake because the economy seemed to be performing fairly rapidly better than expected. We had fiscal policy pedaled to the metal, interest rates at lifetime lows, inventories being rebuilt. It looked like we were just back into a cyclical recovery that we had experienced before and the pessimists were wrong. And when we got into the spring, of course, we got hit with the Greek crisis and the problems in Europe. And then growth started to slow down and uh, the mood turned much, much more pessimistic. And I think the, it culminated in the fall when the Bank of Canada issued a new forecast suggesting that yes, things were going to be slower next year in terms of growth, that's this year now, and that the pickup uh, in the following year, 2012, was gonna be fairly moderate. Change in view, interest rates weren't gonna be going up anytime soon. And as we left last year and entered this year, there was a new wave of optimism. I think it launched with uh, QE2, quantitative easing in the U.S. The fact that the government had uh, hinted that it would not be uh, pulling in the reins anytime soon on the fiscal policy thrust, although that's open for debate right now. And the fumes from the growth that was going to come from that in terms of continued low interest rates and fiscal stimulus was going to be enough to get the economy pumped up again in 2011. And that's where we are today. And it's true. 
the amount of fiscal stimulus that we left in the economy and interest rates where they are today are probably sufficient to get U.S. growth up towards 3%, Canada slightly less. And we will be uh, barreling through the year, at least in the early months of the year, at perhaps a better than expected rate. But the reality for borrowers is that the current rate scenario, the current level of borrowing costs are a gift. And they are not going to be around forever. Longer term rates are already going up. And I suspect by the end of the year, short term interest rates will be going up as well. We will see governments being forced to cut back as bond markets react to excessive deficits. We will leave this year, and I think in a more somber tone, and on balance, growth for next year will be hurt by deferring some of the events that will have to be, uh, that should have been done this year. And as we go beyond this year, uh, the borrow to buy mentality that drove particularly the U.S. economy before the recession began is largely over. Public policy will be pulling in its reins. We will find that even in the, uh, the private sector, the demographic shift towards an aging population will lead to more cautious spending. So I think at the end of the day, while we will have growth sustained, we are not double dippers. We believe that the global economy is on the road to recovery. It will be a slower growth reality, 2 to 2.5%, two we think, for the major industrial economies, something that may be a little stronger in Canada than the U.S. than Europe and Japan, but certainly a slower growth reality than it was before the recession began. And that by itself creates new problems in reining in fiscal deficits and the like. We may also, and I have a big question mark beside this, a big question mark on the role of government in the future, whether we are going back into a period of bigger government. Because the whole issue of pulling in the deficits may not lead to smaller governments, but more intervention. In the areas of uh, trade policy and investment policy, you may also find that uh, you have a more interventionist type of, uh, of uh, thrust. And with an aging population, the whole issues of health care, social security, particularly in the U.S., where it is not funded currently, are going to be big issues, and they will fall on the shoulders of government. So the unknown, I think, beyond this year will be what is the proper role and the eventual role of government in the overall process of sustaining economic performance. Now, I've been talking about the old world, the traditional economies. There's also a new world reality out there. The Chinas, the Indias, Brazils, uh, those economies continue to perform in a way that the developed world simply cannot, growing at a multiple that you're seeing in the developed world. We think that is going to continue. And it's going to continue in such a way that China and India in particular outperform the developed world by a very wide margin, by a multiple. China's already the world's biggest car market. And the BRIC economies, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and, uh, and China, are uh, now consuming 30% of uh, cars in the world today. In other words, 30% of, uh, of car sales globally. They are a major force in commodity markets. I think increasingly they will be important in other industries, in tourism and as well. The story that you do not hear a whole lot about, which I think is very important, is the fact that they will become increasingly important in our financial markets, driving bond yields higher if they get nervous about excessive deficits, influencing currency markets if they're nervous about what's happening in Europe or in the US, because the cash is in these emerging economies. They've effectively uh, become more dominant in a wide variety of areas in the economy, and I think that importance will only grow as we go over the next uh, few years. 
their financial strength, in my view, will drive bond markets. They will drive foreign exchange markets in a way that we, uh, we are uh, not seeing currently. Moreover, I think uh, because uh, a lot of stories in the paper right now are about uh, inflation or deflation, um, this will change fundamentally because of the emerging world. We started the year worrying about inflation. Middle part of the year, with the economy slowing down, we were worried more about deflation. Now we're seeing food prices move up very substantially. I think inflation will become more of a worry as we go forward. As the emerging world drive commodity prices higher, as agricultural prices are under more upward pressure, as flat screen TVs do not continue to go down in price, and computers do not continue to go down in price because the currencies of these emerging economies, the RMB in China and others, begin to go higher and the US dollar and the Europe, uh, European currency adjust lower with respect to those currencies. What does all this mean for Canada? Well, in terms of commodity uh, markets, the answer is fairly straightforward. We believe oil prices will be going up this year. Into, it's currently around, uh, oil price currently around $91. I wouldn't be surprised if it's in the mid-90s uh, on average for the year as a whole. And this uh, strength in commodity prices is very good news for resource-producing regions. It also suggests the Canadian dollar will remain at or above parity. As a commodity producer, Canada enjoys an enormous amount of cash inflow. Moreover, uh, I believe that the U.S. dollar and the euro will tend to come under intermittent downward pressure. Don't think the euro is going to collapse overnight, as uh, our forecast may suggest in some of the uh, things that are turned in later today. But at the end of the day, over the next five years, the commodity currencies and those currencies of emerging markets will tend to be ascendant over other traditional currencies. We also, uh, and this is a story particularly for Ontario, in this type of world environment need to readjust exports towards fast-growing regions and away from markets that tend to be growing more slowly. Our traditional market right now, the U.S., is absorbing still a little over 70% of our exports. At a high watermark a few, uh, a few years ago, it was 85 cents. It, in my view, will tend to be going down in market share. The core messages that I'd like to uh, leave you with this year are very, very similar to last year. We are on the road to recovery, but that road isn't taking us back to where we were before the recession began. We've reached a tipping point where the emerging world will have a much greater influence and we have to adjust to the new strategic plans that we will need to adopt in order to be successful in that very changed world environment. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Amanda, for that generous introduction. <laughs> and um, and uh, happy 2011 to everybody, and thank you very much for being here today. Uh, and I want to start off um, uh, talking about uh, a theme that's already been uh, suggested here by, by Gordon and by uh, Warren. Uh, and it's the most important political and economic development of the last year. And it's a, a development and a trend that will continue into the new year. Now, what we witnessed last year and will experience through much of this year was the crash and burn of the great liberal fantasy that grew out of the global financial crisis. The financial crisis, it was said, marked the end of capitalism, 
across Europe and throughout the United States and into the darkest corners of the Canadian political landscape, we saw politicians and pundits declare free market economics to be dead. It was time for a return to big government to get us out of the mess created by the markets. It was a time to bring in new laws and directives and regulations to release us from the control of the nefarious bankers and unregulated global speculators. Now today, barely two years later, and the tables are turning as capitalism and semblances of free market are looked upon to bail us out of the mess created by big governments. In Europe, where the President of France and the Chancellor of Germany once declared capitalism and free markets to be dysfunctional relics of a doomed American ideology, most of the political air time now is spent dealing with government debt, economic paralysis, and various monetary policy crises. Now, closer to home, nothing symbolizes the failure of the new status ideology than the rebirth of Barack Obama as a middle-of-the-road politician. The great leftist has transformed himself into the great centrist. The Obama administration is now supporting tax cuts and backing away from radical reforms. In Canada, there are plenty of signs that ever-expanding interventionist governments are not all that welcomed by voters. The Harper Conservatives, while hardly radical free marketers, remain in control in Ottawa, while parties on the left flounder. They got no traction, really, out of the, uh, the, the fiscal uh, financial crisis. British Columbia lost the Liberal Premier after a tax revolt. Ontario is heading into an election that seems likely to administer some punishment to a Liberal government that has created a fiscal mess, soaring electricity rates, and a ubiquitous nanny state. Alberta's Conservatives face a challenge from the more free market Wild Rose Party. Now this wave of anti-leftism, if I can call it that, is a global affair, but it has a local version. The arrival of Rob Ford as Mayor of Toronto, and Don Cherry as a leading political figure <laughs> on the municipal scene, even on the national scene. Now as you all know, Don Cherry brought his hockey night in Canada sensitivities to Toronto politics when he talked about left-wing pinkos at City Hall during Mayor Ford's inauguration. Now the left was outraged, the media went crazy, and critics said the CBC should do something about Mr. Cherry's political comments on hockey night in Canada. Now as it turns out, the CBC is responding. I've learned that during last night's Canada-United States junior game, the CBC experimented, experimented with a pilot project, an alternative commentator on Coach's Corner. If Don Cherry can comment on politics and Afghanistan, then maybe a political player can comment on hockey. So the CBC brought in, to experiment in studio, Stephen Lewis, <laughs> former USM... UN ambassador to provide equal time analysis of hockey. It's top secret, it's a trial run, Coach's Corner with Stephen Lewis. I've got a transcript leaked to me. Uh, I would have had the video, but Amanda is saving it for the national tonight. <laughs> so here's what Stephen Lewis had to say last night after the game 
I am gobsmacked, nay discombobulated, by the shocking display of gratuitous and senseless physical conflict by the Paleolithic Neanderthals who today parade before our innocent children as participants in the once noble and, dare I say, wholesome Canadian national sport known around the world as ice hockey. So then Don McLean said, but Canada won. Isn't that a good thing? While I have some residual positive sentiments and a moderate sense of pride <laughs> in Team Canada's victory, Canada's dominance of world hockey cannot be supported in good conscience. I cannot contone this national travesty and unholy abandonment of principles of global equality and of our national heritage as a country that rejects the winner-takes-all ideology of the United States of America. I can only conclude that this abandonment of principle was orchestrated through the backroom connivance of the Harper Conservatives. It is also, I must add, a blatant and deliberate contravention of the United Nations International Convention on the Rights of All Nations to Enjoy Victories in the Sport of Ice Hockey. Now, he wasn't finished. Uh, not one African nation has ever won a championship ice hockey game. Millions of children around the world go to bed hockeyless without a puck to their name. This hegemony must stop, and I intend to bring this up at the next World Summit for children who have no ice. Okay, said McLean, let's do this for the kids in Zimbabwe. And next week, Don Cherry is back with Coach's Corner special on the United Nations Declaration of 2011 as the International Year of the Forest. <laughs> I don't know what that had to do with forecast, but I couldn't resist. <coughs> but as we head into next year, the left is in retreat and the forces of capitalism are on the rise. We are, in short, at the beginning of the cleanup of the mess left behind by massive expansion of government spending and monetary extravagance. All indications are that the markets are ready to take up this challenge. Corporations and investors are sitting on unprecedented volumes of cash. This is the capital that will drive capitalism's recapture of the economy and a return to growth. The North American stock markets have already begun to react to this new environment. Manufacturing is picking up. Uh, uh, and that these trends toward more growth and production will continue through the year seems inevitable. What is not certain is the ability of big government to get out of the way fast enough to make this growth solid and sustainable. By getting out of the way, I mean two things. Reducing government spending, not tax increases, reducing government spending, and reining in monetary policy. So far, politicians are talking about the need for fiscal reform, but nobody is doing anything about it. The second big uncertainty is monetary policy in the United States and to a lesser extent in Canada. Unprecedented printing of money by the US Federal Reserve has flooded the world economy with US dollars. As a result, the US dollar is going down, gold is, is excuse me, going up. The Canadian dollar in this environment seems to me set to get stronger than it is now, and so will the euro. That's a hint. The price of gold since 2006 is up 152%. Today, commodities are rising. The price of oil is up. This is good for Canada. But is this a new bubble 
in the making. Low interest rates and monetary expansion are creating an environment that could fuel pockets of inflation, indeed general inflation, but specifically bubbles that risk a repeat of the mortgage bubble that was at the heart of the original financial crisis. I ask you, is Facebook worth $50 billion? That's the question. But there's no denying that a major shift in the political and economic landscape has taken place and will continue. It's a shift back to markets, growth, and away from big government. Thanks very much. Look forward to your questions. I'm not sure if this is on. It is. Uh, thanks so much, Terry. And just a reminder, as um, we invite John Iveson, I've got a lengthy intro for him, so bear with me. Um, you've got cards on your table. Once you've filled them out, raise your arm like this. It asks me to demonstrate, so I'm going to. This is how you raise your arm. And somebody uh, from the Canadian Club will come and get your cards and bring them up here, and we will incorporate them into the conversation. John Iveson. That was it? Oh. Thank you very much. Allow me to take you uh, inside the Ottawa bubble. And uh, Gord, whose wife is Scottish, can translate for the non-Scottish people here, if you would. <laughs> um, Amanda mentioned that there is going to be a cabinet shuffle in about an hour's time. Uh, I intend to ignore that completely, since my intent is to uh, make predictions that won't be proven wrong for another couple of months, at least. Um, as always with shuffles, those who are talking don't know what's happening, and those who know what's happening aren't talking. So. Um, I think we're all in the dark until the announcement is made. Although if I was pushed, I would say, I, would, I think Tony Clement may end up in environment. And, uh, and I think there will be good news in store for Peter Kent, one of our former colleagues, who I think will be promoted to a senior portfolio. But uh, frankly, I was more excited by the news today that SpongeBob SquarePants has been renewed by Nickelodeon for another season. But uh, each to their own. On with the, uh, plow on with the, uh, the planned uh, speech. Uh, the writer Kingsley Amos once compared the male libido to being chained to a lunatic for 50 years. And uh, that got me thinking about the liberal leadership. Uh, I think uh, the same analogy applies to that unenviable post where uh, the holder is tethered to a caucus that seems to be full of MPs who are as mad as hatters. Um, who would be Michael Ignatieff in this new political year? I think his problems are multiplying like zebra mussels. Um, his pitch is to create a big red tent. This is what you always hear him saying, big red tent, comprising liberals, uh, disaffected progressive conservatives, and disgruntled New Democrats. And there's simply no evidence that the liberals are picking up support from either left or right. Voters don't seem to buy the liberal spin that this is a government whose time is up because of wasteful spending on planes, prisons, and publicity budgets. And a new pub, uh, poll came out yesterday from a new firm called Abacus Data. And it suggested the Conservatives are more associated with economic recovery and low taxes, and the Liberal brand is identified with weak leadership and internal divisions. Uh, as pollster Darrell Bricker of Ipsos Reid noted recently, very little has changed since the election of 2008. Uh, the Conservatives tend to trade in the mid-30s level, up or down 1 or 2% every so often. Uh, the Liberals are in the high 20s, and the NDP are in the mid-teens. Uh, the government continues to lead all other parties in the indicators that really matter, um, mainly the economic ones, job creation, economic management. And Stephen Harper uh, outpolls Michael Ignatieff two to one 
when, uh, when it comes to those same issues. So without a game-changing event, it would seem that the status quo will prevail because most Canadians seem to have made their minds up already about the parties, the leaders and the issues. So, yet despite this, for some inexplicable reason, a number of members of the Liberal caucus want to have an election. Uh, I'd suspect that uh, they do not have the leader's best interests at heart in doing so. Um, this, this is a party whose fundraising has been on a downward trajectory for the last year, uh, to the extent where they, uh, they may need to put their TV advertising on layaway to pay for it. Uh, I don't think it will come to that, though, because I think Mr Ignatieff will commit to voting down the government over the budget only if he feels confident that one of the other parties will support the government. Uh, some co commentators have su suggested recently that the Conservatives may do a, do a deal with the Bloc Québécois that uh, includes some kind of sales, uh, sales tax compensation package in Quebec and even a hockey arena for Quebec City. I, uh, I think that that is unlikely to happen. It doesn't make sense because I think the Conservative election plan is to raise the spectre of a Liberal NDP coalition and one, a coalition which would be supported by the separatist boogeyman. Uh, in, in such a scenario, uh, a deal with the bloc just does not make sense. Much more likely, in my opinion, Finance Minister Jim Flaherty will throw a bone to the NDP, I think in the form of some kind of low-income uh, low seniors package, uh, energy efficiency incentives for new homes. Uh, I interviewed Jack Layton before Christmas and he showed no enthusiasm for a spring election, saying he would support the budget if the government showed it was listening to him and his party. So given the number of provincial elections in the second half of the year, I would go as far as to say that there will be no federal election in 2011. Like all governments that uh, come to office who, who should be advised to burn their speeches, I will be setting fire to that prediction immediately after. Um, what other trends might we see? I think if the Liberals continue to show no sign of progress, uh, the Unite the Left clamour will grow. Um, one of Michael Ignatieff's problems is that he is to the right of many people in his party. Uh, he's decried as a conservative masquerading as a progressive by some liberals. And I think that, uh, that you know, his, his fortunes are on a... His, his coat is on a sugarly peg, as you would say in Scotland. Um, a merger can't happen under Ignatieff or even Jack Layton, but I think if you look at what has been said by Bob Ray or Tom Mulcair of the, the NDP, both are sympathetic to some kind of uh, centre-left coalition. As for the Conservatives, I think 2011 will see a transformation in the tone and style of this government, as Mr Harper tries to transform himself into the Neil Diamond of Canadian politics. Uh, it seems to me that Mr Harper is most vulnerable uh, to the charge of being uh, arrogant, uncaring, uh, only believing in open government when the press is going to find out anyway. Uh, Prorogation hit the government's popularity like no other phenomenon in 2011. At one point in January, a poll showed that the Liberals were even ahead. Uh, and nothing, not, not the G8, G20 cost overruns, the, the single sourcing of the, uh, the fighter jets, uh, the long-form census, the UN security seat uh, debacle, none of those uh, problems for the government really uh, tarnished the government's image. But I expect uh, that we're going to see a government that's less driven by tactics, less divisive, less likely to scare the women and children. He's got a, a new chief of staff, Nigel Wright, who some of you may know, who's said to be a good acquisitions guy. And that job requires a level of empathy, which I think has been lacking in the Prime Minister's office in the last little while. Uh, other changes, I think on the policy side, just whipping through what's uh, coming down the pike, we're going to see a dull, steady-as-she-goes budget that shows restraint when it comes to new spending, but avoids too much slashing. 
I think we'll see a deal with uh, President Barack Obama aimed at thinning the border and beefing up security around a continental perimeter. Uh, we'll see a human smuggling bill which will, which will probably be defeated in the, uh, in the House of Commons but won't spark an election because the government wants to fight uh, an election on economic management. I think we'll see a continued push for a new si uh, single national securities regulator if Ottawa gets a uh, positive decision from the uh, Supreme Court. And I think we may see a free trade deal with the European Union if the provinces are willing to give way on uh, patent protection for, uh, for consumer drugs and uh, the government can resist the inevitable pressures that will come from the Canadian dairy farmers. All of these policies, I think, fit, fit with Mr. Harper's long, uh, longer-term game plan, which is mo moderation, incrementalism, uh, with the goal of making conservatism the nat national or natural governing philosophy of Canada. I think it's when it's deviated from this plan that he's got into trouble as he tries to kneecap his rivals. So I think uh, the, the big blue tent, which uh, he needs to attract more people who are not identified as conservatives, uh, I think to do that, he needs to do what Ronald Reagan did, and that's put a friendly face on conservatism. Uh, so in conclusion, I think we'll we're going to see a lot more of Mr. Harper crooning Sweet Caroline in the new year in an attempt to convince voters that he does not bite the heads off bats. Thank you. Thank you, John. And uh, last but certainly not least, Diane Francis. Okay. Not much time, right? Eh? I'm going to race because we want some questions. Um, thank you for coming. This is always a great, great deal of fun. I'm going to talk about my past forecasts because they were pretty good. Uh, then I'm going to talk about my observations about the last year, and then I'm going to go to the fearless future. Um, last year, I, uh, I said that commodities would, uh, would tear ahead. Uh, that was right. Nickel, 43%. Sulfur, 153%. Iron ore, 100%. Unbelievable. Precious metals, of course. I said gold would hit 1,500. I was a little over on that one, but considering how much lower it was down, uh, that was okay. I said we'd stay out of a recession, no double dip. Energy shale would be the game changer, but the environmentalists would take action against that as well. Deflation would remain, but stimulus would have to come along to counteract. Of course, we've had Q2. Lower interest rates, good for Canadian real estate. That kind of held up until the summer. Sea dollars stronger than the U.S. are strengthening. Obviously, maybe parity against the U.S. dollar, terrifically um, true, and will continue. Um, significant events in, events in 2010. I'm going to be going all over the map here, not just markets and so on. Um, the climate situation, the climate issue, environmental, and so on. Copenhagen was an abysmal failure, a totally unwieldy exercise. 10,000 people trying to decide on anything uh, was impossible. The result is nothing has happened, and what has happened has been very ad hoc. Um, green protectionism is rising. Uh, the end of subsidies and emerging e economies for fuel which is actually a conservation and environmental measure, is politically destabilizing. I think we have to watch around for that. They're cutting back on subsidies there. And also in India and other countries, we're going to see real interesting problems. But it's not over, and it's still an overridingly important issue to most people. And as I like to say, Simon's junk or not, the train left the station. Everybody knows, and it's pretty intuitive, that as the population grows and economic growth with it, we have a pollution problem and therefore an environmental problem. In the US, politics as usual, 
the uh, left of center president or the right of center president gets clobbered in midterms, corrects to the center, makes both extremes angry, and positions for re-election. In the US, it's also interesting, of course, to note that, of course, you know, reality TV is something we all enjoy. Fox News is a misnomer. It's become Republican Party reality TV. There are now, we're going to see, the primaries have started for the Republican Party. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, we've got a lot of people who may be Republican candidates or are and may win that appear regularly on Fox. So if you want to watch the primaries, you don't have to wait for the big speeches in the Super Bowl dome anymore. Just tune into Fox. Palin's there, Huckabee's there, Hannity's there, O'Reilly's there, Dobbs and Beck are all there. So that'll be kind of a fun thing to do uh, for the next two years. U.S.-Canada relations, uh, always a worry, particularly the security. We see the trade as an economic issue. They see it as a national security issue. We're not on the same wavelength even now. Passports are a problem. Tourism has collapsed, and the border is thickening, and that's a problem for business. Canadian politics, I defer to John. No reason for an election. I don't think we're going to get a majority, maybe in a generation in this country. We have four parties with pretty bedrock uh, power, and place runs okay. The other uh, it's significant event was the Potash Corporation uh, situation, uh, the nixing of the takeover by BHB Pilliton. I was kind of involved in that one. A few of us got really motivated, and it made a difference. It's the inflection point in terms of foreign investment policy in this country. I think for quite some time, and we're going to see what the Tories trot out, but if they don't want problems from 65% of the population who, like myself and the people of Saskatchewan, disagreed with the takeover, uh, they, they daren't do anything other than protect our resources from foreign interlopers and stop letting Canada be come and get it Canada. That's no longer done anywhere else in the world, including the United States, the land of capitalism, free enterprise, and it sure as heck shouldn't be done here, and it won't be. The other significant event was WikiLeaks, and we've had WikiLeaks around a while, but this was the mother load. And this is not going to ever stop. It can't be stopped, and it is the new journalism. It is the new journalism, in my opinion, and it's the kind of scoop uh, getting that all of us aspired to, but now the technology allows the democratization of hacking and theft. And so whether you're a company, an individual, or a country, it's not over and it never will. Mr. Assange can go to jail in Sweden or in the United States for a million years, but you notice they are attacking him in the United States with possible prosecution, but not the New York Times that publishes everything he's given to them. The uh, result of that, and of course the other things, is the creation for the first time this year, this is very significant, of a new department of the Pentagon on cyber controls and security. So they have air, land, sea, space, and cyber now covered. Forecasts, and I'll go through these quickly because we are running out of time. As I've written before and others, the third year of a presidential cycle is the strongest U.S. market. Here's the facts. It's quite amazing. Um, in every third year of the presidency, except for 1931 and 1939, the average increase in the U.S. stock market is 14%. goes back 80 years. Gold, I think, will fall back on average to about 1,400 for the year. 
Uh, that's because the U.S. government, the U.S. dollar will be shored up through growth and through some spending cuts that the Tea Party types will impose on Congress, which is not a bad thing. Oil mid-90s, I agree with Warren. Natural gas remain in a funk, which is horrible for Alberta. Commodities will continue to be swept upwards. Emerging markets are booming, except they're running out of roads. They've got lots of cars. they got no roads. So there's going to be some impediment to that growth. And more volatility, I think, in markets. There's just many, many more moving parts with all these players. Politically, I think we're entering a tripolar world. Germany has taken the moral and fiscal authority of Europe um, and helped uh, and will help uh, work through the Eurosclerosis, the United States and China. Most dangerous country in the world remains Pakistan, and that's all you have to know about India's future. Middle East model does never, doesn't get resolved, and there's an arms race going on as the United States withdraws from Iraq. Business-wise, uh, talked about Facebookism, I call it. Uh, everybody now gets 15 minutes of fame. It's the huge time waster of the century, and I waste my time on it, I must admit. But the importance to the business world and the political world is it's grabbed, it's colonized mindshare probably an hour or two a day for 500 million people, which is at the expense of the entertainment economy, media, sports, and political messaging. Continuing government activism, the lessons of the meltdown were that the state cannot play a minimal role. It has to stay there, and it has to stay there for the good of all of us. Uh, the Google attack by the Chinese government or Chinese government-sponsored terrorists uh, has underscored the fact, even in the land of free enterprise, that governments and maybe their armies should protect their corporations in the so-called globalization of free markets. Deleveraging will continue, and that, that does have a break on growth and so on, taxation and fighting deficits. But basically, uh, states, municipal governments, provincial governments, federal governments, individuals are cutting back and deleveraging, and that's good. China will have inflation this year. That'll be interesting. So at the end of 2011, I say that the rebalancing that we've said is necessary for the global economy to be sustainable going forward will have started to really bite. The savers are spending, and the spenders are saving. Thank you. Thanks so much, Diane. Um, I'm not going to start with a question from the room, and I'm going to start, Warren, with you, but um, I, I think uh, maybe several of the panelists might have a, a view of this, so jump in when Warren's finished. Uh, but there's a question asking uh, specifically about Canada, the two biggest risk factors or threats to the growth of the Canadian economy. Warren, what would you say they are? Uh, a further significant rise in the Canadian dollar, I think, would uh, be a major impediment to exports. Exports are the weak link in the economy right now, at least non-resource exports. And I think as you get up to around uh, the 104, 105 area, it becomes uh, a political ouch point for the government. It's about the only thing that I could uh, think of that would suggest that the next move by the Bank of Canada could be down in order to uh, take off some ex ex uh, exchange rate pressure, although our view is that's not going to be the case, but I think that's a big risk. The other one is uh, uh, further border friction. While we are increasingly involved in global markets, our main market is the U.S., and anything that impedes access to that market would be a major negative, particularly for Ontario. 
Terry, do you have a view? Those are two great uh, risks on the horizon. Uh, I suppose the U.S. policy still is a bit of a, on energy in particular, on climate change and where the administration goes with that issue in the States will have a major impact on Canada, although that's not an immediate something that's going to happen over the next uh, six months or, or eight months, but it's, it's part of the long-term problem that Canada is going to have to face in dealing with U.S. policy on climate and carbon taxes and emissions and energy, et cetera. Well, I was going to uh, just mention that as well. I think that the Americans have now moved on environmental protection uh, guidelines, regulations. So they are actually going to take action. I think the, go the Canadian government can't procrastinate anymore, much as it would like to, I'm sure. So I think that the sh shuffle, which we will see in about an hour's time, is being taken with a view to the fact that the environment file is going to be pretty crucial. The other one, uh, public policy area, which is going to be uh, a big story, and I, I think again plays into the, the cabinet shuffle, is that the, uh, the health uh, deal with the provinces is up in 2014, which is really tomorrow in terms of uh, planning. And I think that uh, there's going to be some major and hard negotiations done between the feds and the provinces on that. Diane, I want to redirect a little bit. Somebody else asked whether the U.S. federal government will have to bail out individual states in the name California in particular. Nobody here talked about uh, the, the real threat of a, of a, whether it's a double dip or it's just a, a fleeing of foreign interest from U.S. bonds, but the real threat that the U.S. poses to our economy. What's your view? Well, what's interesting is that in the U.S., uh, constitutionally, the federal government backstops the states, and the states are not allowed to run a deficit for more than three years. So if something happens, suddenly they hit the wall. And we saw that happen in California where they did hit the wall, and they were actually issuing script or IOUs to suppliers to the state government. They were shortening jail sentences by half. They were laying off daycare workers. I mean, they had to do what they had to do because they really had... Uh, no ability to tax their voters, and they had no ability to continue to run uh, deficits right up through the roof. Uh, interestingly, uh, the Canadian deficit situation is not as rosy as some people might think either. And the provincial government debts have been soaring underneath the federal debt, at, which has also been going up because of the, the, uh, the bailouts. So, uh, we are both, uh, for all the, the bawling and mewling the United States has about their GDP to deficit, which is nearing 100% of GDP, ours is, that, is also that high. I'd like John and, and Terry both to uh, talk about the political landscape in Canada. Uh, John, we had a question from the room on what's likely to happen in Quebec politics in 2011 and beyond. And, of course, Quebec is so relevant as we look to this spring budget uh, to the things that sometimes find their ways into pre-election budgets at a time when fiscal prudence is still uh, the order of the day. How yeah. worried are you about what all I, of this shapes up I don't think that's going to happen. I think that, uh, you know, the, the, I think the government, it was not the government's finest hour, and I don't think the Prime Minister would think it was his finest hour when he turned down the, uh, the BHP potash deal. And to go beyond that, I mean, that, that obviously there were a lot of Saskatchewan Conservative MPs who were lobbying for that deal to be turned down, but I think a lot of the Conservative caucus was very uncomfortable with that. They made known when rumours were, when the, when the infamous f uh, photograph was taken with all the Quebec uh, caucus, Conservative caucus members with their hockey jerseys on, supporting this deal, it was made known to the Prime Minister that this would be a bridge too far as far as uh, uh, lobbying for the Quebec vote. I don't think he's going to go there. I think it would just open such a can of worms as far as uh, 
the, 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 he's already turned down the one in Edmonton. I think Hamilton wants a, a, an arena. You know, where do you draw the line? And I think that they have, at the moment, I think he's, he's thinking about, we've got to look as if we stand for something so that we contrast to the Liberal Party, which, in his eyes, stands on all sides of every issue. So I don't think he's going to be lobbying too many goodies in too many directions in the next budget. I, I, I just wanted to mention the Ontario situation a little bit uh, further. Uh, the fiscal uh, situation in Ontario is uh, uh, significantly gruesome. And uh, it's a miracle of politics that uh, Dalton McGuinty has been able to ride through uh, this period and ride through uh, a number of issues such as uh, the energy file, uh, persistent uh, meddling in, in various parts of, uh, of, of the economy. Uh, and none of it seems to register all that much with voters, or so it seems. And the interesting thing is going to be the degree to which Tim Hudak catches on once he becomes a focus uh, of attention in the political, uh, in, in the media, uh, heading up to the October election. Uh, and if I were to predict any political outcome, I think Dalton McGuinty and the Liberals are going to get defeated and that uh, Tim Hudak will be the next Premier of Ontario. We're going to get a little rapid fire here because we're running out of time. Um, Warren, we've got a question about uh, a commodity boom. It actually says we are currently in a commodity boom uh, statement. I think Kevin O'Leary wrote this. Uh, how long will this last and is it a bubble? So first of all, do you agree it's a boom uh, and uh, how, is it a bubble? Uh, I agree it's a boom, although natural gas producers wouldn't look at it that way, as Diane mentioned. Uh, it's not a bubble in my view. The growth and demand is going to be fundamental, although beyond three years from now, technology will lead to enormous surprises in, uh, in innovation that could change which particular commodity is really the, in the sweet spot in that particular environment. And let's talk, um, I think everybody should weigh in, but briefly, um, rather than have a fulsome discussion uh, on, uh, on foreign investment in Canada, I think uh, Terry and Diane, would you just arm wrestle? <laughs> uh, clearly a bit of a diverging view here. We never do anything like that in public. Is that right? Uh, but clearly you guys don't agree on, on foreign investment in Canada. That, that would be absolutely true. Uh, 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 <laughs> Since Diane used the word interloper. <laughs> Interlopers, yes. Well, I thought the Podash decision was a very bad uh, economic decision and uh, a political one that was created. Uh, the circumstances were created for that decision by Brad Wall uh, in, a, in a remarkable series of uh, posturings and events. Uh, I, I like to think it's a fluke. Uh, that there are very special circumstances attached to it, and I can't imagine the Canadian government stepping in again to prevent the takeover of a Canadian corporation. Uh, maybe you could find some circumstance where it might be true, but as, as a general thing, that is not going to happen again. Anyone else want to weigh in? Well, 67% of polling showed that uh, Canadians agreed with the decision. I certainly did. I made most of the arguments that Brad also made. Um, it was clearly the, the most important decision for this country to take or else just to become recolonized by a number of superpowers who are desirous of our real estate and our resources. And we have very weak governments, let's make no mistake, we're a big country but we're a small country and there are forces out there who desperately need our resources and we've got to play that card. That's our trump card and I think it's, it's critical. Alcan should not have been sold. 
INCO should not have been sold. And I really believe that the foreign investment, that the foreign investment policy of this country should be there has to be the onus on the acquirer to prove that they can actually enhance the national interest, not just keep it, enhance the natural national interest in order to develop our assets. Let them buy minority positions. Let them buy minority positions. Let them invest on the stock market. But we cannot lose our head offices that are in charge of our resources or our tax and royalty base. John, does it put our government in an awkward position when we're out there um, propagating freer trade uh, and at the same time closing our borders to capital? Absolutely. The, the uh, speech from the throne last year was replete with references to uh, Canada being open for business. And then uh, it turns out we're not. Um, I do agree with Terry, this was a very unique circumstance. Open for business is different than selling your birthright. I'm, I'm talking about what, the, what was in the yeah. speech from the throne. It was basically we want to bring in more foreign investment. This was a very unique circumstance in that, it, you know, there are 13 out of 14 MPs are Conservative. Uh, it was appallingly handled by BHP, who sort of blundered in without even knowing that the province controlled the resource. And, uh, and I, I just think that, the, that those set, of course, it was... As the Premier of Alberta mentioned, this is like buying the whole oil patch because it was, it's obviously such a dominant player in the potash business. So I suspect that the, the rules will be clarified. We will not see that level of confusion again. But, um, but I, I think it's upset a lot of uh, Conservatives, including inside the Conservative caucus. Let's you get can to read all about this in the financial post over yes. the next... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all about these debates, I mean. Um, let's get to some predictions. We are asking the room to predict uh, the, the euro, including whether uh, the euro collapses. Can we just have a quick run down the table of where the euro finishes the year, Warren? You're talking about the euro against the U.S. I think both are going to be weak currencies, so staying around 132, 33 is possible, but the real deal is going to be what happens to emerging market currencies and commodity currencies like the Canadian dollar. What is the contest uh, about, by the way? Is it, the, is it, the, is it the, the euro against the U.S. dollar or the Canadian dollar? U.S. dollar. U.S. dollar. Uh, then uh, in that context, I would say the euro will be up and the dollar will be down. I agree with Warren, whatever he said. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And um, just for the, again, straight down the table, uh, in terms of where we go, it, there is seem, seeming disconnect between what stocks are doing and what the economies are doing. Um, Warren, does the TSX, just as an example, finish this year notably higher than it is now, lower, or roughly where it is? I could see it a bit higher, but we're going through an optimistic phase right now. We're going to have another period of lunch bag let down as we get into the spring, and the growth isn't pulled through. So. Uh, be prepared for another uh, fairly substantial ride on the uh, on the uh, on the markets, uh, both up and down. Uh, I would say that it would, would be up uh, by the end of uh, this year. Uh, the, the disturbing thing is the price of gold. If you look at the, the chart that has the price of gold over an extended period of time and the stock markets, when gold goes up, as it has since 2006, the stock market goes nowhere. When gold goes down, the stock market goes up. Uh, and we seem to be in a phase where the gold price is up and, and, and may trend a little bit higher, uh, in which case that's a sign against the stock, mar stock market. But on the whole, I think it'll be up a bit by the end of the year. Didn't we hit two-year high yesterday? Which would gold? refute that. No, in the, in the Dow. Two years. Gold and the market. It's up 13%. Yeah. You know? 
Then I'll it's buy what you're selling, Terry. <laughs> over an extended period of time, the market is flat against, uh, since 2002, the market has gone nowhere. Sounds plausible. Well, it's gone straight up and then straight down. <laughs> yes. That ain't nowhere. My portfolio says nowhere. That's just me. <laughs> Diane? Yeah, I, I pretty much tracks this, this third year of the presidential cycle information is kind of fun, and it's actually there. And we pretty much track, but we're not, we're, we're not going to go up 14% like the Americans have on average on the third year of a cycle, but it'll be up and it'll be substantial. The break on it will, of course, as Warren said, be if we go way over par, we got a problem. And just uh, again briefly, but I'll start with you, John. Uh, to what extent do Canadian politics uh, change the outlook for us economically? Are we going to stay the course regardless of what happens, regardless of whether there's an election? Are we staying the course? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the, the, the mantra has been that uh, the stimulus is coming off in, in March, although some of it's going to be extended into the fall, um, and the private sector has to pick up the, the slack from there, which you're probably all quite relieved about. I think the government is going to step back. Um, the, the focus now moves to fighting the deficit. I don't think they intend to slash and burn, but I don't think they intend to spend lots of money either. So, uh, you know, it's pretty neutral, I would think, from, from that point of view. The, the environmental uh, situation is a bit of a wild card, because I think that that, uh, you would hope by now that most companies have built that into their models, but, uh, but I think, it, by and large, neutral on the federal level. Provincial, not so much. Warren, do you factor in politics to your forecast? Well, the biggest risk, it would seem to me, is the governments are too blasé with respect to deficit reduction and, uh, and push it off till next year. We've already heard some hints of that. The biggest risk provincially is that we do not get a new deal with respect to interprovincial transfers over the next five years because Ontario is now below the national average in terms of uh, income per capita and uh, is contributing into the national environment as though we're significantly above. We are at time. I'm going to finish with uh, one question that was actually directed to me. Um, Amanda, who will be the new CBC anchor in 2011-2012? Thank you for asking something that's perfectly easy to predict. It will be Peter Mansbridge. He will be standing. <laughs>
for their continuing promotion of Canadian club events. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you.